Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is looking at M&A from the acquirer side of the table, part one of a two-part series, and it's a conversation with Carl Heckenberg, president and CEO of Emigrant Partners. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. And if you find the content in this series to be useful and know others who could benefit from it, please feel free to share it widely. When New York Private Bank and Trust doubled down on their control of fiduciary network in 2018, the wealth management industry took notice. Sure, banks had been playing in the M&A field with RIA firms for years, but this was a different game altogether because fiduciary network was actually an aggregator of RIA firms, not an RIA itself. In fact, Fiduciary Network was a pioneer in the industry alongside Focus Financial Partners, providing a pathway for founders of independent firms to take some chips off the table, to recycle equity to the next generation, solve for succession, and develop strategic partnerships for M&A. While there were some naysayers on whether a bank could successfully compete amongst acquirers, Howard Milstein, the chairman and chief officer of that bank, bet it all on my guest in this episode. And few will disagree, it was a smart bet for sure. Because Carl Heckenberg, president and CEO of Emigrant Partners, has taken the role seriously, putting the fiduciary network name aside and building out a value proposition that's rooted in providing growth capital and serving as an advice partner to independent firm owners. And this value proposition, along with the well-established clout of the Milstein family, has carved a niche for emigrant partners that few others can claim, and has earned the firm industry distinction as being representative of a new breed of acquirers in the RIA space. While the M&A market has enjoyed years of record-breaking deals, the impact of the COVID crisis has put some uncertainty into valuations and appetite. But as Carl shares, it's not all bad news, as even in the midst of this pandemic, Emigrant completed two acquisitions, $14 billion Stratus Wealth Partners based in Ohio on April 1st, and $3 billion RIA Parallel Advisors out of San Francisco on May 4th. We'll be speaking with the founder and CEO of Stratos, Jeff Concepcion, in our next episode to get his perspective from the seller side of the table. But for now, I'm excited to have Carl on the show to share the acquirer's point of view, how Emigrant's unique value proposition is driving success, the impact he foresees as a result of the COVID crisis, and his advice for both current and prospective independent business owners. So let's get to it. Carl, thank you so very much for making the time for me today. I'm very excited to uh, be invited on the uh, podcast. Great. Tell us a little bit about your background. I mean, Emigrant Partners is doing some really exciting things. I know you've had some really exciting things happen in the last few months, but let's start at the beginning. How did you come to be the CEO and president of the firm? Sure. I actually met Howard probably about two and a half years ago, and it was kind of an interesting coincidence on two different businesses that the bank owned. One which uh, was the sale of HPM Partners, now Serity, which is run by a fantastic human being, Kurt Masensky. And I was working at a firm that I'm sure you remember, Mindy, uh, Hillier Lyons, which is now part of uh, R.W. Baird. But at the time, I was I was at Hilliard, and I had been looking at HPM Partners uh, as they had just gone to market. And then, strangely enough, Hilliard had a large trust company, and one of the businesses that the bank owns is a private label 
Delaware trust company that does works with banks, broker dealers, and other trust companies. And uh, a good friend of mine runs that business, Tim Carroll. And um, Tim had found out that, you know, I was involved in the process with HPM Partners. And at some point, he just said, you know what, you, you really need to come to New York and meet Howard. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Exciting. So, for those unfamiliar, what is the value proposition of Emigrant Partners and its affiliated company, Fiduciary Network? Sure. I had followed Fiduciary Network for years. You know, it was always a bit of an enigma, but I, I found that the idea of providing minority non-voting capital to these really great independent wealth management firms, very attractive. I'd seen enough control transactions in my lifetime to know that generally I feel like those are very tough to make work. And, you know, when I had met Howard and learned the story of the bank and, you know, the family and all of the different operating businesses, it, it really just seemed like a exciting business. I think the value proposition is, as we meet with sellers is, you know, look, there's traditionally a couple of different avenues a seller can go down. One is a control sale. One is a sale to a private equity partner. And then, you know, one is how do I stay independent? And that's the area that I think these businesses have really built themselves up to be something incredible. They want to stay independent, but they have either a founder liquidity issue or, you know, they really need help taking the next step into growth. And being what I call a family office that owns an operating bank, I think we're fairly unique in that we can come in and really tailor a solution for those companies. And, and that's something that historically has been reserved for private equity. The problem with private equity is the investment time period is, you know, three to five years. And that can be very challenging for a firm to have to go through this every three to five years. And then, of course, the alternative was to sell to one of the other firms that generally were private equity backed. But, you know, your high towers or your focuses or firms like that, which are wonderful in their own right, but the solution tends to be much more rigid. So the idea of being able to work with these companies and provide something that was really custom fit to their needs was extremely attractive. And I, I think that's really the way we position ourselves when we meet with different folks. So who in the ecosystem of investors in the RIA space does Emigrant Partners most closely resemble? I think the firms, and, and frankly, we're friendly with all of them because I, I have to tell you, I, I find it fascinating in this industry because I think education is 90% of the process when we meet with sellers, because I really don't think really any of us are really doing the same thing. And I think once a seller figures out what each one of us does, and I'll, I'll name a few of those firms, but I think we all do it a little bit differently. And generally they find once they get educated on the capital partners in the market, then picking a partner becomes much easier. So some of the firms that I would say would be in the minority space along with us would be, you know, Sinusure, which is a, a wonderful family office in Salt Lake City. We know that group very well. Kudu Investments, Rob and Charlie are, are wonderful people. They're minority investors and, you know, their background's a little bit more on the institutional side, but they've done some things in wealth. And lately, Hightower's gotten a little bit more active in, in the minority side, although I, I think that that transaction still looks a little bit different. But, you know, obviously we know Bob and, and think highly of what they've been doing. So, you know, I think on the minority side, it's, it's actually a pretty small marketplace. I think you're right. So tell us about Howard Milstein and the Milstein family and their relationship to the firm. And what does Howard Milstein and the Milstein family bring to the table that makes Emigrant a unique capital partner? It's really a fascinating story. I mean, the Milsteins are now a fourth generation real estate family based here in New York. You know, the family's investments are controlled by Howard, who's also the chairman of the bank, and he runs the family's real estate businesses. But it was started by his, his grandfather, Morris, who started as a wood floor refinisher. And then his father and uncle uh, really got into real estate development and particularly Times Square, Upper West Side, and still have a very large real estate business in, in certainly New York and around the country. But in 1987, it was actually Howard's idea that the family should buy a bank. And if you know, you recall in '87 there was obviously the RTC crisis, and uh, the family ended up buying Immigrant Bank, uh, which has its own fascinating story. If I can take a second on that, Immigrant Bank was founded in the 1850s by the uh, Catholic Church and a group of Irish immigrants, 
and Immigrant itself actually financed all the Catholic churches in New York City, including St. Patrick's. They financed Central Park. But in 87, they kind of caught themselves in a reverse spread lending situation and needed capital. And so the Milsteins personally recapitalized the bank, became the only voting shareholders of it, and really expanded their business into banking. And today, it's still a very diverse family, uh, well outside of real estate and even banking. Uh, Howard is business partners with Jack Nicholas, the golfer, and there's probably 80 some odd businesses that kind of roll into the family. I think one of the things that Howard brings, and, and he's met a, a number of our partners uh, you know, over the last year and a half, is Howard understands that kind of entrepreneurial mindset. I think he appreciates how these business owners have built these businesses, what, what they've accomplished. And I think he understands what it takes to help those businesses to the next level. And that's capital, but I think it's also advice and how you do that in a thoughtful way. But, you know, I think in real estate, much like what we're trying to do in our business, having a very long-term perspective is is helpful. And, you know, I think we've seen that by even the two investments that we've made since, uh, you know, in the midst of, of COVID-19, which were Stratos and Parallel. And... What was the Milstein's family attraction or interest in the financial services space in this RIA space? How did they get involved in it? So, you know, this actually goes back to pre-2007, but, you know, the family actually, along with Mark Hurley, started a fiduciary network. But actually, at the same time, they started uh, another business, which they had control interest of, which was HPM Partners which is now a $20 billion multifamily office RIA. And I think what Howard believes in very strongly is, you know, these independent wealth management firms, the idea of providing unconflicted advice, being able to work with clients in an open architecture environment, and, and you know, really focusing on financial planning and asset allocation and, and all these things is very attractive. And, and I think that's, you know, when, when I started in the business, um, you know, a long time ago, I hate saying this, but the only people that I knew that were independent were, to me, a little bit crazy. You know, it was a little bit out there in, in the 90s, the idea of these independent firms. And now it's really the platinum standard. If you're a financial advisor, even if you're at a Goldman Sachs or, or, you know, Morgan Stanley or UBS, you know, it's aspirational to own an RIA. And I think, you know, certainly Howard, Howard saw that. And, and I think starting those two businesses was a validation of, of what he saw of, you know, what would come in the industry. Yeah, I call it part prescient and part really yeah. smart, but I think he was right and it was a good bet. So you mentioned 87 businesses under the Milstein yeah. family umbrella. <laughs> what are some of those businesses and how is there any, I guess, uh, cross-contamination in a good way, cross-pollination synergies that can be created between any of those ancillary businesses and the emigrant partners businesses? There are some of the businesses that I, I found very compelling and I thought it would be important to kind of tell when, when, you know, Immigrant Partners was formed. You know, I mentioned New York Private Trust Company, which is just does private label trust services for banks, broker dealers and RIAs. So the ability for an RIA to have a branded trust service without the hassle of kind of chartering a trust company and going through all that. We have a very large high net worth property and casualty brokerage business called Personal Risk Management. We have a large private credit platform that actually a, a number of firms have tapped in an SMA uh, program. We have uh, New York Private Finance, which is actually a, a liquid lending business for clients with LP interests, land, other kind of illiquid assets. And one of the most interesting businesses that, unfortunately, I don't know enough about um, personally, but uh, we work with them a lot, is Immigrant Fine Art Finance, which is actually the largest art finance platform in, in the world. Um, and then, you know, there's other businesses. We have the largest investment bank focused on professional sports franchises. We have a family office portal business. It's been interesting over the last two years to kind of see how we've slowly kind of introduce these firms to our companies. And it's it's never a mandate that you work with them. But we found is you put smart people in a room and they get to know each other. They, they start using each other as a resource. And that could be trust, insurance. We have a venture capital arm and clients getting access to some of that, you know, kind of thought leadership and being able to access those investments. And 
you know, just being a bank in and of itself and, and having a deposit platform and the ability to even, you know, make loans to clients in more challenging situations has been a huge benefit. So I want to focus a little right now on the two deals you've done recently. You just mentioned it. In the midst of this COVID crisis, Emigrant yeah. announced two major acquisitions. First, the $14 billion deal with Stratos Wealth Holdings based in Ohio on April 1st, and then $3 billion RIA parallel advisors out of San Francisco on May 4th. And actually, Jeff Concepcion, the founder and CEO of Stratos Wealth, will be a guest in our next episode of this podcast. So we'll get to hear from the sellers. It'll be much more interesting than I am. (laughs) Well, we'll see. It'll be be a contest. But I'd love to get your point of view on those deals. So what can you tell us about them? Why now? What was compelling to Emigrant about them? What was compelling about Emigrant to them, et cetera? Yeah, you know, so it's interesting. Jeff was working with Liz Nasvold, who, who's you know I've I've known for years and as a friend. And you know, Liz called and said, I, "I think this is a business you should look at." And admittedly, it's not a business that I think historically we probably would have looked at. You know, I always say Stratos's clients are you know the actual advisors. And, you know, it's a little bit different, but I'd heard wonderful things about Jeff over the years. So we went to the meeting here in New York and, and I met with Jeff and Jeff was there and, and Nancy and Lou Camacho and, and Charles Shapiro. And I just walked out of the room after the meeting and I turned to Alex, uh, who's our, our COO, and I just said, we've got to make this work. It's just so rare that you see a management team come together like that, the the interplay between them, the way that they run the business, the way that they've grown the business. But Jeff, I'm sure you know, is is one of the, the most thoughtful, kind guys in the business. And his focus was not on the financial transaction. His focus was really on the value add and creating a partnership and how we would benefit them, how they could benefit us. And, and that's nice when you get somebody asking that question, you know, how could we help you? Because uh, honestly, you don't get that a ton. And we just looked at it and said, look, this could be a fantastic opportunity. And and clearly they ended up feeling the same way. But I think it was really just the management team and the interaction between our team and theirs and kind of the shared vision of, of what Jeff wants to do with the business. And it's just incredibly attractive, especially in a market like this. I mean, if anything, I think COVID validated our thesis that a business like Stratos is just going to grow exponentially. I'm sure you've seen it too, Mindy. You know, there were a lot of advisors after 08 and 09 who said, I don't ever want to live through this again. And then we got this incredibly benign period of low volatility and great market returns. And a lot of people that probably should have done something didn't do something. And I think COVID has been an an amazing reminder. We've seen it in our pipelines, but Stratos has certainly seen it in theirs as well, where sellers are saying, you know what, I want to spend the last couple of innings of my career with clients, not in the business of running a business. And the opportunity for those advisors and kind of what I would call that that sub, you know, half a billion dollar category is just so numerous. And, and there's so many great advisors out there that do want to find a partner like Stratos that we were, you know, I, I don't want to say you never want to waste a good crisis, but coming into this, I think we got even really more excited. And frankly, even seeing the results of Q1 and, and what they've done this year is just astronomical. Let me just ask you to clarify for a minute. Not everybody is familiar with Stratos, and we'll hear from Jeff Concepcion in our next episode directly, but Stratos differs from a traditional independent firm because it is essentially a conglomeration, if you will, of smaller independent firms that utilize Stratos for the middle office and back office and whatnot. Is that a good way to say it? It is. And then, you know, they've certainly started expanding that business by buying equity stakes and in, in RIAs and that they're typically providing those services to. But that that's a very good description, yes. Yeah. And I and so to your point, I agree that crises like this and the financial crisis of 08 certainly highlight one, the fact that many people who were close to retirement anyway will look to accelerate. And many, even if they're not looking to get out of the business, certainly looking for a partner. This crisis sort of can make someone who is a standalone business owner feel lonely. And so I think you're right that the M&A market will be more frothy as we come out of this and firms like Stratos will do incredibly well. 
How about Emigrant's interest in the second firm, Parallel Advisors, out of San Fran? Sure. You know, so, so you know, when I met Jake and CJ at Parallel, it, it was a similar first impression of um, that I had when I met with Rob Nelson and Dominoff from North Rock. And, and I know you've had Rob on, on the podcast as well. And it was really, again, that conversation. And both of these guys are 50. This wasn't about liquidity in, in North Rock or, or Parallel or even, frankly, Stratos. It was really about growth capital. And, and when we, you know, when I met Jake and CJ, we kind of sat down and they talked about culture a lot. They talked about what they wanted out of a partner and, and how they wanted an operating relationship. And we really didn't even talk numbers. You know, it was more, what can you do for us? Similarly, how can we build a better parallel? And candidly, Mindy, it's a conversation I love having. It's just not a conversation we get to have enough with people that we meet mm -hmm. out there. Um, and the other thing that was incredibly attractive when we started to get to know them was the culture that they had built, you know, um, the, you know, it's it's very open. And I, I think that even got referenced in, in one of the articles that got written. I was called in, you know, at one point and I met with all 26 partners and this is before a decision was made. And that's actually very rare. You know, it's, it's very rare that the entire partnership really gets kind of involved in this decision making process. But all of the partners were asking the right questions. How are you going to make us better? How are we going to grow? How do we do this together? How can we be good partners? And, you know, when you start hearing questions like that and, and people aren't focused on the economics, because I usually say if, if you can get that part to work, you can make the numbers work. You've got to get that connection to, to form. And, um, you know, similarly, their growth has just been 30% a year for a decade. And it's just been a phenomenal success story. But I really appreciated the fact that this was more about bringing in someone because they're realizing that to take the firm from 3.4 billion to 10 billion is a different journey. And, you know, they want help. And that's an exciting conversation. You've referenced, we've talked about three firms, North Rock, which is one near and dear to my heart because our firm was fortunate enough to represent Rob Nelson and his partners in the selling of a minority share to Emigrant. Yes. And the two deals you're just talking about now, one with Stratos and one with Parallel. So let's use those three as an example. And you talk about, you know, all three partners were focused on less on their personal financial gain and more on how can you make us better? So what are some of the things that they were hoping you would do for them and some of the things that you, as a partner of Emigrant, they can expect from you to accomplish as opposed to just going in, you know, continuing along the same path? Why sell at all? And then why Emigrant? Sure. The biggest thing that we've gotten to be able to provide, and I say this is great because it's free to us, is just the network of firms that we're invested in currently. We're invested in 16 firms. It'll be 17 at the end of this month with you know over 55 billion of assets. So these are by nature very large firms. They're fantastic firms, and I'm you know obviously including the fiduciary network firms in addition to the immigrant partner firms. But just that networking community, and and we've hosted a number of small offsites where, you know, five or six of the CEOs of similar sized firms can get together and talk. And while a lot of these guys are in study groups, you know, they're still playing a little bit of defense. And we've noticed within our kind of gatherings, they really let their guard down and they really start sharing and they start figuring out how to leverage each other. So I think that just that community of very large, sophisticated firms is incredibly unique in this industry. We don't have an investment in a firm that's under a billion dollars and the average is north of three and a half. So that's a little bit unique. And then I think in some of the other areas, it's it's really because, you know, myself and my team kind of sit at this nexus in the industry. We get to see what makes firms what, what gets them to be able to take that next leap to the next level? And sometimes it's governance very often, in, in my opinion, and this sounds self-serving, but it's about broadening the ownership internally. I don't think it's a coincidence if you look at benchmarking data in this industry that firms that have more broadly distributed ownership internally grow faster. And that's one of the things that we help these firms do. But I think that them seeing best practices from other firms, and that can be consulting from us on compliance legal consulting. It could be even around real estate. You know, how do I negotiate on this? How do I do this? A lot of it is benchmarking. I mean, we work with all the custodians, but we have a fantastic person in our group who's got a wonderful background that 
really spends her time on non-M&A related activities with the firms, digging into things like client profitability analysis, looking at their margins, whether it's it's EBITDA margins year over year and backing out, you know, market appreciation and, and all of these other things that frankly, you know, these are still mostly small businesses and they are usually, because they're growing so fast, they're, they're usually extremely busy. So being able to have somebody kind of step in as almost an outsource enterprise project management office and say, you know, let's prioritize four things that are important to you as opposed to the 20 that are on the whiteboard. And then how do we accomplish them? And I think that those things and and just some casual conversations around how, how do you create a partner? How do you install better governance? You know, how do you really approach M&A? You know, M&A prep, I, I joke, I spend more time talking firms out of M&A than I do talking them into yeah. it. And, and yeah. so I, I think it's all those things. And it's just having an open, transparent conversation and understanding each firm is different. You know, I kind of mentioned our capital solution and we view it as very flexible and, and the ability to tailor it to these firms. But I think you also have to tail kind of the advisory work to them as well, understanding they all have different backgrounds. They were all formed at different periods of time. They have different partnership dynamics and makeups, and we've kind of seen it all. But really understanding what, what is going to make that firm, you know, what made it special and, and what do they need to retain, but how do they make it bigger and better? So how does Emigrant think about who would be a good partner for Emigrants? So in this world, in this universe, especially now as we talk about how there will be more sellers likely in the RIA space, there are more and more billion dollar plus firms. So other than the fact that a firm manages more than a billion dollars, what else would make them a good, good partner with Emigrant that would make you interested in investing in them? Yeah, I think the biggest litmus test for me personally is when we meet with the next gen. And it's amazing, even in a prospect stage, how enlightening that can be on what it's really like at that firm, because it's very excited to get enthusiastic around a lot of these firms and they're big and they're large. But then when you actually start setting people down, similar to what I was saying around uh, around Parallel and Northrock, when you start meeting with different people and they start getting excited about the partnership and they've been involved in the decision, because I always say we're dealing with the founders, but really we're going to have to live with the next gen and vice versa. They're going to have to live with us. We want them to be as excited about the deal because I think the legacy of this industry going back 10 years was these were founder transactions. You know, the founder did a transaction, the next gen got dragged along. And I think over the years, you know, and not with our firms because of the way that the equity gets recycled, but with other firms, you've seen people that feel trapped, you know, the firm's been sold and they're just not happy with it. So as we look at that, I I think next gen engagement is a major kind of gating issue for us is are they excited about the deal? Do we have kind of a shared vision? I think, you know, we're, we're very much interested in more growth financing than necessarily just founder liquidity and that piece of it. Not that we still don't do that. It's a big part of our business. But I think finding firms like the North Rocks and the Parallels and the Stratuses and, and the Audises who are really very focused on how do we double the size of this business? And when I get really excited, it's how do we double the size of this business? And they're not talking about M&A. That's exciting. Yeah. So what kind of investments are you making in these firms? Sure. We kind of view ourselves as really the only integrated capital partner kind of out there. So we're always a minority investor for the long-term capital. So that's generally used for, you know, founder liquidity, but it can also be used for larger kind of capital infusion into the business. It sits on the balance sheet and that could be for acquisitions. It could be for expansion and so on. But then we also provide just the regular term financing for the next-gen partners to acquire their equity in the business, which is, I think, a very critical part. Uh, to make sure. And frankly, I don't think enough of the capital partners focus on that piece. They focus on acquiring the majority of the economics, but they don't focus really on how you're going to recycle that equity. And then we even supply our firms with working capital facilities, acquisition financing, and that could be term debt. It could be additional long-term capital. So our biggest kind of foundational belief is the firm should always have more of the economics than we should. We should always be in the minority. They should always have more skin in the game than, than we do. Um, and we found that's, that's actually what makes the next gen happy. You know, for them to have a career, it means that they, they you know, over time want to acquire more of the equity. 
Right. And can you give us a sense of how you think about valuation these days? So you're talking about firms, a billion-dollar firm, a $3 billion firm. What are the multiples like these days? You know, I I think for firms that are really still growing, and COVID's actually been a great litmus test. I still remember the moment when when I called Nancy at at Stratus, and we were very close to closing at the end of March. And, and, you know, I said, hey, do you guys have a sense of kind of where your revenues are? And, And she sent them to me, and they were up. They were up, you know, and, and, you know, you just, you know, in parallel was the same way. And for those firms, I don't see any compression in, you know, the multiples. The most challenging thing for, I think, most sellers who haven't done a transaction to get their head around is multiples actually don't mean a ton. It's adjusted EBOC, it's adjusted EBITDA, it's EBOC minus, it's EBITDA plus, it's, you know, adjusted on what. Is it on the run rate? Is it on the historicals? So multiples, I think that's why there's no good research on multiples. But, you know, for billion dollar firms, you're still seeing, you know, high single digit, low double digit numbers for smaller firms. I don't expect the multiples will change because partly I think that's what people have stuck in their head. What what I think is going to happen, and this is good for the industry, is I think the risk is going to go back to being shared by both buyer and seller. You know, the last few years, as, as you know, certainly you've been in, in the warehouse recruiting space as well. The risk has really just been strictly on the buyer. And sellers have been able to dictate those terms that sometimes were just head scratchers. And more often than not, we just politely decline. So I think the good firms, I, I think actually in some ways, they could probably almost ask for more if they can come through COVID-19 and show that their revenues were flat to up and their margins maintained. But I think that there's going to be a lot of firms that carried a lot more equity beta than they were advertising. And they've really seen kind of their margins get crushed and, and the revenue drop. But for the best firms, which, you know, uh, obviously is what we focus on, I I really haven't seen a change. Right. And for the three firms you mentioned, or any of the 17 partner firms under the immigrant umbrella, why would these firms have chosen to sell equity versus taking a loan, let's say? The notion of selling equity versus taking on debt Sure. It's interesting. I mean, the debt component, I would say really at the firm level is a new thing within the last several years. You know, it used to be RAs really couldn't get financing without founder kind of personal guarantees. So that is a bit of a new phenomenon. I've already noticed that it's already dried up too. Um, you know, that, that's been kind of a, a unintended consequence of COVID-19 is similar to how the majority of banks are no longer even making jumbo mortgages. I think that, you know, they're going to go back to asking for personal guarantees from, from firms. But look, I'm always very transparent with a firm. If, if you can finance what you need to, whether it be an acquisition or succession, you feel like you've got a good next gen, you've got some good distributed ownership, and you can do it with traditional term debt. It's no doubt the cheapest form of capital. And Mm. if you can do it, you should. Now, why firms choose to transact with us is is a bit of a different question. And I think it goes back to more of that advisory piece. Some of the next gen don't want to carry debt on the balance sheet for fear of an event like COVID where it could impair their ability to reinvest in the business at a time where it's very opportunistic. Uh, Firms that are carrying even modest amounts of debt, let alone a lot of debt, you know, in an environment like this, the banks won't lend to them. They could get stuck in a situation where they can't actually complete an acquisition in this environment. We have two firms, actually, Stratos. We've already funded an acquisition for them that hasn't been announced three weeks in. <laughs> so, you know, for them, it was certainty of funding. You know, they, they knew having a partner like us, no matter what the environment was, they weren't going to have to mother may I to the bank and convince them to lend them money to do the deal. And actually, Parallel has as another small one lined up. So I think it's that certainty of, you know, being able to bring term debt into the structure and, you know, finance those when the opportunity is greatest, because that's the thing that really kills people is is this is the time that they probably should be out in marketing and, and acquiring businesses. Yeah. And yeah. if the debt market dries up, and, and unfortunately it has right now for, for a lot of folks, it's pretty challenging. And how have the firms that have been under the immigrant partners or fiduciary network umbrella for a long time, so you know, North Rock and Parallel and Stratos are newer additions, but how about firms that have been under, under your umbrella for five or 10 years? How have they done? How has Emigrant demonstrated its worth, you know, over that period of time? 
I think if you take some of the earliest firms, and, and one is in your hometown, Region Atlantic, the founder of that firm is David Bugin is long gone. We're financing the third generation. You know, the second generation that bought some of David's equity is now selling to the third generation. And they just crossed $4 billion in AUM. You know, Avinsky Katz, which was actually the first uh, fiduciary network partner firm, you know, that I think when that investment was made, that firm is now three times the size. And again, you know, Harold and Dina, uh, Harold, who founded the firm, Avinsky, you know, is is retired and again, financing the third generation, not not just the second. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, those firms are, are growing and thriving. You look at a Sandhill and Palo Alto or a Brower and Janikowski or, you know, a Brightworth in Atlanta or an advisor investments in, in Boston. I mean, they're still just remarkable firms. I am the beneficiary. You know, Mark built a phenomenal group of firms. Uh, you know, no one would ever, I think, challenge that. So we, we've had a wonderful relationship with them, but just watching them and being able to use them as a case study when you talk to a parallel or a North Rock around equity transfer and all those things, it's nice to be able to pick up the phone and call a George Stapleton or, or a Ray Padron at Brightworth and say, you know, these guys have done it. They've done it. They also weathered this through, you know, 2008, 2009, but they've successfully transitioned their equity. And I think that's what's made them very attractive firms within their, their local markets. You know, Brightworth's done a number of acquisitions, but them being able to say, hey, we have a capital partner, but B, more importantly, we have an active internal marketplace for our equity units. And we're growing at twice the benchmark of what a normal billion dollar firm is. So it's just an incredibly impressive group of firms. So what steps should or could an RIA principal be taking to build a firm that will be attractive to an acquirer? So you've got a firm that, whether it be because of this crisis or any other reason, is beginning to think about my next steps. I've reached a ceiling on growth. My next gen is not as robust as it should be. I don't really have a succession plan. I'd like to think about recycling equity. I mean, there are things I want to be able to do, and I realize I can't by myself. So I've got a number of choices. But how do I make myself, how do I make my firm attractive to an investor like Emigrant? Yeah. I think the biggest thing that that a firm can do up front is just be transparent about where they're having challenges. We've seen challenges across the board. We understand firms have them. I usually tell people, if you think you're going to retire in 10 years, that means you sort of started transitioning the equity probably 10 years ago. That's one of the biggest mistakes that we see is, you know, when we go in, two or three people still own 80 or 90% of the equity. You know, that's a really challenging situation to have that firm stay independent. So, I, you know, I always tell people you don't have to sell to us, but you got to start selling to your next gen and start selling early, even if it's nominal sales, just to get them on the map and to get people comfortable with it. You know, another big one is you really need to manage your P&L as if you were marketing your business today. And you need to do that every day, every year. No buyer likes to see a lot of adjustments. That could be car leases, home offices, country clubs, all those things. You've really got to manage your expense structure and your P&L so that when a partner comes in and looks at your historical financials and then they're looking at your projections, the margins are essentially the same. You know, nobody wants to see, well, we used to operate at a 20% margin, but we're suddenly this year we're going to operate at a 52% margin. Yeah, that doesn't make anybody feel very comfortable. So I, I think managing that as if you were always kind of out in the market is, I don't want to say sexy, but, you know, for somebody like me, it's it's looking at that historical and looking at the projections and the margins are the same. And the only thing that really differs is, you know, assumptions around revenue. And then I think if you really want to command a high multiple in in the market, you need to be able to demonstrate growth and not just market appreciation growth and and having a handle on your business and on your numbers. So, you know, if we're having an initial meeting and we're talking about, you know, growth, you can talk about how many, what percentage of your clients are over the age of 60 and what percent are under the age of 45 and how much of your revenue is attributable to that and, and, you know, all these things. And really understanding just the metrics of your business, because I think the worst thing that's happened the last 10 years is we've had a phenomenal bull market in the in the public equity space is people just 
frankly gotten a little lazy. Every year, even if their margins collapsed a little bit or, or contracted, their distributions were more, they made more money because the market was going up by so much and people just weren't managing the business the way that they should. Another thing, and it's not the most tax efficient thing, but I'm always a little bit happy when I see firms have reserved some cash because they are preparing for kind of that rainy day. And, and that's something, if I can give you an easy layup on, on Jeff, you know, that's a fascinating area to talk to him about because I think that, again, it makes everybody feel internally at the firm and externally if, if you're kind of working with a, a external capital source, makes them feel like, you know, you're running this business like it's a business. Yeah. So let me pivot for a minute. A, a good portion of our listening audience are employee advisors sitting at wirehouses or traditional wealth management firms. So let me ask you a couple of questions from that perspective. Does emigrant play at all in the breakaway market? We've actually had a number of conversations with advisors. Um, we kind of developed a financing mechanism. What we found, and, and rightfully so, is and I'm probably a victim of my own candor is, you know, when you're coming out of a environment like that, you really don't know what you have yet. And it's going to stink if you sell too much too fast and you find out you've got a $2 billion business, not a billion and a half dollar business. So, you know, we've kind of talked to a number of different people about and said, look, you know, if in the right environment, if you needed some bridge financing and no commitments, we'll just see what the firm looks like, but we'd love to partner with you. And I think that that's, you know, that's the big difference that, you know, advisors have so many choices now, you know, when you look at even what LPL is doing in, in the transition existence and kind of their new program, and you look at groups like Stratos who, who do it on a direct basis or, or Dynasty or some others, you know, I, I think the point of starting a business like this is, you know, if you're going to do it and, and you have the mentality to do it, you got to be willing to bet on yourself. So it hasn't been something that we've done. We've always been very supportive of. I mean, I, you know, North Rock was, you know, I think only founded about seven years ago. So I still consider them jokingly a breakaway, um, even though they're not anymore. But no, it's, I, I think you just have to have that mindset and know that, you know, you just don't want to sell yourself short coming out of uh, that environment because we've seen some incredible success stories of firms that have come out. And, you know, Summit Trail is obviously probably the the one that people would point to and, and say, there you go. Yeah. So just for our listeners who aren't familiar with who and what Summit Trail is, tell us what you mean by that statement. Yeah, no, I, you know, Summit Trail was interesting to follow from the outside, you know, Jack Peterson, and it was a group that was at Barclays, um, as I recall, they were originally at Lehman, but it was Correct. a group of advisors from all over the country who kind of came together, you know, decided to form an independent firm and, you know, they did it with the assistance of Dynasty. And today the firm is, you know, you probably know more than I am, but I, I want to say it's probably north of six or seven billion. It's a very large independent firm. It was only founded, you know, I don't know, maybe five years ago, it has a wonderful partnership culture. And we've gotten to bump into Jack a number of times and, and just a great human being. But I know when I've talked to Jack, if, if you go back and said, you know, what do you think this thing would be? I don't know what he would have said, but my guess is it wouldn't have been this. And it's been extremely attractive and, uh, you know, it's been a huge success story of breakaways that have come out and continue to grow at a phenomenal pace. And, you know, it's just a great firm. So I think sometimes when you have lightning in a bottle, what, what you don't want to do is just, you know, sell yourself short. Right. So it's less about emigrant being philosophically opposed to investing in a breakaway and more being honest and transparent about the fact that it may not be in the breakaway's best interest to sell equity out of the gate until they've built the firm they're meant to build. Yeah. I, you know, we've seen that a few times with people that make equity or, or rev share deals with breakaways. We're trying to design long-term partnerships. So uh, what you don't want to do is have someone resentful that they thought that, you know, the firm was going to be X and it's three X and they sold more than they needed to. So, you know, that's why I said when we've talked about this idea with a few firms, we've said, look, you know, I, I think what makes more sense is to provide the bridge lending to, to help you become an independent firm. And then, you know, uh, we're happy to discuss a longer term investment and, and any group that's contemplating a move, 
I think that that's the approach that you should take. There's a lot of great people out there like a Matt Sonnen who can help you do it. But once you become independent, even the ability to, you know, Northrock, as, as Rob may have mentioned, you know, they partnered with a group at Ameriprise out of Chicago. And, you know, it wildly exceeded their expectations just by moving their business into Northrock. And being able to, you know, build their clients differently to be able to offer tax and, and other services and their expectations and frankly, our expectations on, on what kind of revenue that they were due were, you know, just wildly exceeded. So we wanted to be a good partnership over a long period of time. I respect that answer. I actually think that's incredibly valid. But I think that there are a lot of, I mean, we work, we counsel a lot of these breakaways and our advice to them would be exactly the same that... Mm-hmm. You need to be long-term greedy. So while it would be nice to sell a portion of equity to have a capitalist strategic partner out of the gate to solve for some liquidity issues and capitalization issues and the like, at the end of the day, if you really believe in your firm's growth, I think you're you're worried about you don't want to be resentful. But So what would your advice be to a prospective breakaway? I'm an advisor sitting Mm -hmm. at UBS, doesn't matter, any firm. And I've got a great business and I, you know, I walk away from X amount and unvested deferred comp. I want to go the RIA route. What, in your opinion, then is the best way for that potential business owner to capitalize the business? Yeah, I think that if they're realistic about the amount of work that's going to be involved, particularly, you know, initially getting the firm stood up, what equity ownership is going to look like, what governance is going to look like, you know, all those things, I would tell you, and you could use Summit Trail as an example, but you could use any of these firms as, as a good example. You know, what you can get over a long period of time as an independent firm in terms of, you know, equity value creation far exceeds even a 300% of revenue deal. And we all kind of know that the folks that are out there doing it and they're good firms. And I think people that are more geared towards being employees, you know, those are great firms to be a part of. But I think for someone that is, you know, kind of going, well, you know, I'm trying to figure this out. Does it financially make sense? You know, the ability, even with somebody like us to sell 10% once they get established and get set up, and then the ability to sell over time at increasing multiples to us as as kind of an external partner, but then also to be able to sell and have a, a facility to sell to their next gen internally. You can kind of sit down and sketch out the long-term math. And, and I'm sure you and Lewis uh, do this for a lot of people. The numbers don't lie. You know, you're going to make a lot more money, not just on a kind of a current income basis, but just on a, on a value basis by building an independent firm. And clients are going to be attracted to it. You guys see the retention numbers too, but you know, the number of people that do these transitions and, you know, core, which is actually on, I think, 42nd Street that came out of, of I believe it was Morgan Merrill. Stanley or Merrill a couple of years Merrill. ago. Yeah. You know, I, it's just the retentions off the chart and the referrals just speed up because clients see the value of kind of this open architecture and this independent firm and the flexibility to do things that, you know, the firm was or the team was previously kind of inhibited from doing. And a lot of the old barriers, you know, I, I made the comment earlier in the podcast, you know, when I started as a financial advisor, you know, only kind of the kooks and the crazies were independent. Yeah. You know, back then yeah. it was because Merrill had a great technology platform, you know, relatively speaking. And, you know, it had access to all these amazing investments. Now, if, if you're sitting at UBS, you know, the, the investment world is much larger on the independent side. And you've still got access to kind of the credit products, the deposit products, the insurance. I mean, you you actually can do so much more on the independent side than you could as kind of a captive employee at, at one of these wirehouses. And 20 years ago, that wasn't true. You know, it is now. And I, I think that's why you're seeing, you know, I think more people have left Goldman Sachs' private wealth management group in the last two yeah. years than they had in the previous decade. Yes, you're absolutely right. We just this week interviewed Jeff Berman, who is an ex-Goldman Sachs private wealth advisor. He left Goldman 10 years ago at a time when it wasn't fashionable to A, leave Goldman Sachs or B, go independent. And he's tripled his business and done extraordinary things and talks about the extraordinary talent and the the robust investment landscape available to 
ultra high net worth focused advisors. So what you're saying certainly rings true and your advice and your candor is really appreciated. So one last question, what's next for immigrant? What's on the radar? What comes next for you? Yeah, no, you never may want to make light of what's happening. But I, I think that this shakeout of what's happening in, in the economy, but within our industry is going to keep, you know, particularly us very busy, you know, certainly throughout this year. But I, I think just going forward, even if we just stop bringing in new partner firms, supporting the firms that we have, you know, they're continuing to get bigger and better and so on. You know, we're continuing to introduce our firms to really great partners. And, and those aren't always immigrant firms, you know, firms like iCapital or, or Spider Rock or, you know, a number of the large kind of GPs um, out there to, to help, you know, kind of build out their business further. So I think we're just really focused on finding quality people, continuing to make good investments. It's It's been a wonderful investment for, you know, the family over the last, you know, 13 years. I would imagine it'll continue to be an amazing investment over the next 20. So I think think we'll just continue to do what we're doing and knock on wood though, right? Yes. Yes. And most importantly, stay healthy and safe through this COVID crisis as the country continues to open and hopefully everybody uh, goes on to do really good things, exciting things. Carl, I can't thank you enough for your time, for your wisdom, for your transparency, for your classy answers, all of the above. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. I really appreciate it, Mandy. Thank you. Pleasure. As Carl shared, M&A is not solely about monetization. Many business owners are seeking a growth and advisory partner, one who can help them realize the vision they have set for their firms. And as we see ourselves through this crisis, He expects that even more independent firms will be ready to seek partners like Emigrant that are well aligned with their goals for the future. Listen in to our next episode and get the perspective on M&A from the seller side of the table when we talk with Jeff Concepcion, founder and CEO of Stratos Wealth Partners. I thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration may require. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908 879-1002 or these days on my cell at 973-476-8578 or always by email mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And a special thanks to AdvisorHub.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.